One more thing I'm going to let you know beforehand. I asked John Doobie if I could have, an, have his knife this morning. And he said, why do you need my knife? Why do you need my knife? I said, well, I forgot mine at home, and I was scared I was going to show emotion when I was in the baby, with, during the baby dedication, and I was going to stab myself in the leg. So I would have cry from pain instead of emotion. That's me. Got to love it. How many of you have ever had a chance to travel outside the United States? Raise a hand. Raise a hand. Okay. So the countries and the cultures and the infrastructures, would you agree, are so much different than ours. And most of the time, if we go to someplace in the Middle East or Europe, much older, much, much older, thousands of years older. And when you travel, you might go to someplace, a museum. I have to be, I love museums, all right? I'm one of these weirdos who just checks out every single thing. When Colette and I were able to go to, to Israel in 2017, we went to the National, the Israeli National Museum. And as the group got farther and farther away from me, I just, I was, she, she was like, come on, what are you doing? And she goes, why? I couldn't help it. I was just looking at the culture. It was so awesome to observe things that are thousands of years old. Thousands of years. It's just fascinating. And I finally did catch up. But museums, they offer incredible things and incredible insights into a culture, ancient or current, of a nation. Other places to go, other tells, and tells, and I'll put air quotes in it. They're this way. Go to places of worship when you travel outside the country. In Israel, we were able to go see synagogues that were thousands of years old. We had Protestant churches where we would go, some of them dating back to the, definitely into the first century. Some of them large and ornate. Others were small. But most of these churches had one thing in common. They had many people going in and out the door but no one's sitting down to worship. They were places where people went to see, places where, okay, they, they saw the history of the place, they checked the box off, and they went on. For those of you who traveled to Europe, I've never traveled there. I want to, I'd love to go there someday. Have you seen the great cathedrals? I've seen pictures of them. Great, giant cathedrals. Thousands of thousands of seats in there for the, or the pews, room for thousands of people. And they continue to have worship services even till this day. They're working churches. They're working museums. But only a handful of people come in on the Lord's Day. And most of them are people 20, 30 years older than I am. They haven't been vibrant congregations for decades or for some centuries. The majority of them, they look like great mausoleums. Mausoleums. Rather than containing energetic congregations. And the ironic thing is that for most places, there are more dead people at those, are those places on a Sunday morning because they're buried underneath the, underneath the floor. How much physical 
effort and materials does it take to erect these majestic, once-thriving places? Think of that. How much material, time, and money. And now, for the most part, only there because of tradition and curiosity for the past. Realistically, in function, they're dead and gone. And the tragic reality, it's been a part of the church since the beginning of the first century. A congregation or a church that is dead and gone. Well, this morning, after our time celebrating our first advent, the first advent of Christ, which means his first coming, a.k.a. Christ's birth, we resume our series in Revelation, The Triumph of the Lamb, where, where we have written for us the unveiling of Jesus. Again, Revelation, it means the unveiling. It's pulling the, the drapes, the carpet, the rug, the, the carpet. Why do I'm looking for the word? What is it? What covers a, of a window? Thank you. I love it when my brain goes dead. Uncovers the curtains drawn. Christ is unveiled and we see him for who he is. And he's not that baby in the manger anymore. He's the king of the world. We sang about him earlier. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord of lords. The author John the Apostle was told to write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those those that are, those you've seen, and those that will take place after this. Well, what did he see? He saw Christ in all his glory. Not dreamy Jesus. Jesus, who has a sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus, who has burnished bronze, who is holy, set apart, who will soon judge the earth. Honestly, welcome truth to the first century audience that it was written to. And honestly, after this week, welcome truths to us as well, two millennia later, because things are now as they were then. Meaning this, mankind's heart's desires have not changed. The things that are, the letters to the seven churches are still applicable today. They were real churches, real first century churches on a postal route. And John sent the seven messengers out to carry Christ's unveiling to them. Seven churches also meaning complete, complete when we see the seven churches, when we read and we study what they were, what the problems that they had, the victories that they had, we still have those today in the 21st century. Well, what have we seen so far concerning the church in Ephesus? She was a hardworking, solid, doctrinally sound congregation, but they had lost their first love. They held everything, they held everything the right way. They believed the right doctrines. They taught the right things, but they had no love. They did everything right. Except they didn't. 
because they didn't love God and they didn't love each other as well as they should have. The church in Smyrna was a congregation facing persecution. Some would even be put to death. Some would be put in prison. Some would die in prison. What did Christ tell them? Be faithful. Be faithful unto the end. And what will happen then? They will get the crown of life. The third church was Pergamum. They were a church that lived in, the, in a city that was probably the most hostile to Christianity. Any place in Asia Minor, any place. They had, there were just time after time, compromise, compromise, compromise. What good, or what would it hurt to give incense to to Caesar. Put just incense on the altar and just say Caesar is Lord. You don't have to worry about it. All you have to do is say it. You don't even have to believe it. Just say it and go on. You won't be bothered. What would it hurt? Everything. Because Jesus wants every bit of you. Every single bit. He doesn't want you halfway. We're not called to walk the fence. God wants his bride pure and unwavering. The fourth church was located in Thyatira. And they were a group of believers who were faithful, serving, and loving. But they had one thing that went against them. They tolerated sin. More specifically, they tolerated the people who were preaching to them, who were teaching them. They were teaching false doctrine, and they didn't say anything about it. Don't. They were to hold fast to the word of God until the end. And their future reward, their promise was that they would be rewarded with the opportunity to rule with Christ himself. To rule with Christ. And the opportunity was with Christ. Not just themselves. Not just, hey, I can, I can have rule over a, a city or two. I get Christ. And he's going to rule with me. Which brings us to this morning's passage. The fifth church. Which name was, was from Sardis. A church that was almost dead. Was dead and almost gone. Would you stand with me as I read this morning's passage? It's found in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, going through verse 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life 
I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of this word. You may be seated. Just as he has done and will continue to do, Jesus himself is the counselor. He's the counselor. He is the one who is qualified to speak honestly and frankly to his own and to all those who, who are around his own, for that matter. Well, how did he describe himself? How did Jesus describe himself? He is the one with the seven Spirits. We went over this earlier in one of the churches, which means he sends the Holy Spirit and he, is, he has the Holy Spirit indwelled with him. We see this in Isaiah chapter 11. And why is this important? Because it ensures Christ's judgment is pure, it's accurate, he knows everything. He sends a spirit. The number seven also signifying completeness, completeness, fullness, and possibly even more regarding this church. The Spirit is the one who gives life. There is no life outside the Spirit. An awfully important truth to a group who are on life support. He also refers to himself as holding the seven stars. Well, we knew from Revelation 1 that the seven stars, the stars were the messengers, were the church leaders, the ones who were sending the letters, who were carrying the letters out. Jesus is in control of the messenger. When we look at this, we go, who do I answer to? I don't answer to man. Although I do have to listen to them, and although they do sign my paychecks, and they do tell me what I need to do some of the times. They hold me accountable. But I am accountable to God. Christ has the seven stars in his hand. Jesus knew who this church was, as he does with every one of them. And he was able to say without error, I know your works. which brings us to the chastening. Well, what was the condition of this first century church? The second half of verse 1 tells us, I know your works. You have the reputation. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Flatlined. Insert noise here. but you don't even know it. You don't even know that you're dead. They were living in their past glory like a fighter who still believes he has one more fight left or a church softball player who thinks he can take two when he hits a single, when he can't even walk to the plate. They're only a shadow of their past. How does a church find itself in this position? How does a church become dead because they don't have a heart attack and just keel over and die? No, it's slowly. Slowly. It doesn't happen in an instant. 
Hanalee Cole from being a light on the hill, a hospital to the hurting, to being dead and not even knowing it? It's a question we need to ask. Now think with me. One way is this. A church can take a false view of itself. They become self-sufficient and they then become self-deceived. Instead of depending on the Lord, they keep doing what they've done in the past. They just keep working and doing the same thing over and over and over again without consulting who? The Spirit of God. Without prayer, without Christ leading us. Doing the same thing over and over again is what? The definition of insanity? We do need to look at the past and see the great and majestic things that God has done. But without Him, a church can and will do nothing of worth in God's eyes. Nothing. The second way a church can be without life is one that capitulates to the world around it. They just, well, that's okay. We want to just, we want to love everybody. But they don't speak truth. They don't tell. They don't say what's wrong from right. When they begin to water down and dilute what God calls them to be, which is what, church? We're to be salt and light. What happens if a salt has lost its saltiness? It's only good to be thrown out. When they don't stand against sin and water down what God declares to be right. The third way a church can end up on life support is bringing God down to us instead of seeing him for who he truly is. But what do I mean by that? Bringing God down to go, hey, how you doing? As one man has said, I'm going to put my elbow on God's, on God's desk and have a little talk. No, you're not. No, you're not. Instead of having a majestic and powerful holy God, he's diminished to only an add-on. Think with me. Is he an afterthought? Is he something that we only do on Sunday mornings? Is he here just to make our lives better and to supply our every want? Notice what I said, our every want. He does promise to supply our every need. A church can have a hop and worship time that sings about who? Me. Me, me, me. I always watch the pronouns. But who are we worshiping? Are we worshiping a great God and Savior? who came from heaven to earth and died and rose again? Or are we worshiping a genie in a bottle? There might be a crowd at this hop and worship time, but are numbers only what matter? Again, I'm not saying that numbers aren't important, but numbers for numbers' sake. Well, how does Jesus diagnose the condition? 
really, really healthy are beginning to display, to display rigor mortis. They're dead. They're lifeless. What are the doctor's orders? It isn't take an aspirin and call me in the morning. No, 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 there's no time for that. There's no time for that at all. The remedy is prescribed. Look at verse 2. Wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight. Stop the spread of the disease and build on what is left. There is no time to waste. Not one second. Wake up. Stop the invasion of spiritual deadness. Well, why would Jesus maybe have said this particular thing to this church? Why would he have said, wake up? I mean, yes, they, they, do, need to, they do need to wake up. But concerning the city, the city of Sardis, now known as the city of Sart in Turkey, was located of five major roads. Five major roads. The main thoroughfare going through it was called the King's Highway. It ran from Susa, which was in Persia, all the way to Greece. And being that it was a, on a major highway, its location, they were wealthy. It was a wealthy city at the time. They had a thriving textile trade. They were skilled at wool dyeing and the like. They were the first city or the first people who struck, who minted gold and silver coins. I mean, these people were hopping. They were rich back in the day. And because of its wealth, what could they afford? They could afford an army that could take care of them. And they had the best military equipment. The main city was built on an elevated plateau, 1,500 feet above the valley. All right, 1,500 feet. On three sides of it were rock cliffs. The other side, it was a, almost a snake-like way to get up to the city itself of Sardis. It was easily defendable. In fact, they didn't think anybody could ever get there. And most of the time, they couldn't conquer them. But hear this. Twice in its history, the city was captured. The first time by Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus, the same Cyrus that is in the book of Isaiah and then by Antiochus. And on both occasions, the enemy, how did they get up there? They went at night, they scaled the cliffs, and no one was watching because they didn't think that they could get to them. They watched the main area going into it, but they were just asleep. They didn't care. They were overconfident. They had set no guard. And the temptation for both a nation and a city and a church who considers themselves safe is always they become complacent. They just do it the same way over and over again. Apparently, this church was lured into spiritual carelessness because persecution wasn't, wasn't there. Persecution was absent. Now, think with me. Why would Satan persecute a church who was dying 
his, his work's done. Wake up. The second remedy, strengthen what remains. It isn't hopeless. It isn't hopeless. There's still a faint heartbeat. What remained was small, yet a faithful group of believers. There were still a group of believers there. They needed the fans flamed. They needed the, the embers flamed or fanned, excuse me. There was still a faint heartbeat. It's been said that a committed minority can sometimes recall a majority from peril. How? Through prayer, love, backbone, and a faithful witness. Christ has given the chastening, but now lovingly provides the counsel. Christ doesn't make small talk. There's no time for that. There aren't any niceties here. He gives them three things they must do, and if not, this is what the almost gone church will experience. The first part of verse 3 gives us the first command. Remember then what you received and heard. Remember. Remember what? What are you talking about? Remember the good old days? Remember when our church was... When, remember when every, but this pews were all full, when the coffers were full? Remember that? No. Remember your salvation. Remember what God has done to you for you. Remember the gospel. Remember that Christ lived, died, rose again. And by believing that, by putting your trust in that, you're saved. You have new life. Remember that. Through his stripes, you were healed and saved. Remember what he was done for you. While we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Remember and also keep it. Give continual, earnest attention to strengthen the remnants of what is left of the spiritual vitality. Obey the Lord's commands. Obey Him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You must always remember, we're saved by what? We're saved by faith. But yet faith without works is what? Dead. Be obedient. Remember, keep and the third bit of counsel and repent. What's repent? It means to turn around and go in the opposite direction. If you're going, if you're going north, you need to turn around and go south. If you're going east, you need to go turn around and go west. A change of mind and heart leading to a change of lifestyle for the better. And then the Lord gives this simple New Testament idiom. If you don't rectify the situation, he promises this. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The 
There won't be a warning. There will only be sudden loss. Christ himself coming to discipline. But what about those who have remained faithful? Those who hear the warnings of Christ and those who change, he gives these the commendation. For those who didn't waver, Christ's redemptive work has changed them from the inside out. Look at this glorious verse. This is probably my favorite verse of this entire passage. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, let's not think too highly of ourselves why we're worthy. It's not meaning that, oh, I'm all that. No. The paradox is being washed in the blood of the Lamb, in, washed in blood, Ladies and gentlemen who do laundry, when you get blood on a garment, it's very hard to get out, and it's, very, it's stained. And if you don't have any bleach to get it out, it's not coming out, and it probably won't come out anyway. It leads to a great... How, how can blood make something white? How can that happen? The paradox of being washed in the blood of the Lamb and having our filthiness, the clothes, the figurative clothes, our works that we bring on our own, polluted and soiled, being made clean by the cleansed blood by, and cleansed by the blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Cleansed in the blood. They're worthy because of the sacrifice of the Lamb. This will be spoken of again in chapter 5 when all heaven sings. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Not everyone's faith was cold. Not everyone. I hope that yours is not. Has the Lord's Spirit been tapping on you this morning? Has he been tapping on the door of your heart? Turn around. Listen. And answer him. Well, Christ gives the challenge and the promise. Verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, church, remember, how does one get their clothes white? How does one get their clothes white? Through the blood of the lamb. Not on your own works, only from what he has done. God provides them. It's what Jesus has accomplished. That's how we conquer. That's how we conquer. 
Those wearing the white garments are provided purity and the holiness given to them by Christ. Paul says it this way, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness, holiness, purity. You're clean. You're clean before God. Now read verse 5 carefully. This is not a threat. This is a promise. Many people look at this and say, we can lose our salvation. This proves it. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. We read many times in the book of John, eternal life means eternal. No one is going to take you out of my hand, Christ says. One commentator has written, because God's holiness had become theirs. Jesus expresses the truth negatively to assert the positive more powerfully. Look at this. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Confess simply means this. That's my child. They trust in me. When you see them, you're seeing me. They're mine. I'll confess you before my Father. Those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb are secure forever. But I would remiss, be remiss to give you a false sense of security here. Most of the church in Sardis did not know that they were dead. They were deceived. Have you been redeemed? I'm not saying that you just coming to church or quote unquote saying the magic words. Have you been redeemed? Have you been changed? Have you passed from death to life? The Lord warned us in the Sermon on the Mount this warning. He gave us this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then the most terrifying words that anyone could ever hear. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Have you been redeemed? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. I'll conclude here. A person in a church can have the reputation of being spiritually alive and not listed in the Lamb's Book of Life. A person can be on a membership role of a church and not be on God's final role. 
Make sure, do not be self-deceived. You might be asking, well, what is a letter to a church 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor who was almost dead and gone? What's it have to do with me? Or what's it have to do with us? We aren't worshiping at a mausoleum, are we? Concerning RBC, do we have any of the symptoms of self-sufficiency? Have we relied on doing things because we've just done it that way in the past and not consulted with the Lord of our church? Have we possibly become complacent? Have we lost our awe of God? Is it possible to think that we are more alive than we really are? Strengthen what remains. For each of us personally, and because we are members of this local body, we need to ask these questions of ourselves. Have I become spiritually complacent? Have I lost the camaraderie and the enthusiastic spirit I had back in the past? Have I gone soft on culture? Does it bother me if my neighbors or fellow workers are lost for eternity? Would God say that we are guilty of form without prayer, reputation without reality, outward appearance without inward integrity? a show without life. Strengthen what remains. May we be honest with ourselves and our God and look forward to this. May we all Look forward to walking in white garments together with our great God and Savior. I pray that for each and every one of you. Father, we come to you after hearing these sobering words. asking you to tell us the truth, reveal it to us, what we need to hear. We have all been dead in our trespasses and sin. But you have made us alive through the Spirit if we have believed in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we get back to the basics May we truly, truly 
love you and love those around us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.